Hey, this is JJ Matat. I'm the worship pastor at Jubilee, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope it ministers to your heart and allows God to speak right to you. If you would like to know more about our church, visit jfc.org. Enjoy the message. Through disease, famine, and slavery, your promise remained. You made a way. When men were surrounded by soldiers, trapped with the lions in the darkness, through prayer and a jawbone, you made a way. Giants may tower over us, enemies may build walls, but by pebble and trumpet, through large armies and through weak soldiers, you made a way. Even when your own children cursed your name, when you were beaten, broken, and nailed to a tree, you promised to save, you conquered death, and you made a way. We continue to prove time and time again that we are hopeless. Still, you make a way. You make a way to love us and show us who you are. You are the way maker. You are the promise keeper. morning. Glad that you're here. Um, Man, I love that song. That is just a powerful song. Um, We begin a new series today called Waymaker. So um, it's our Easter series. And believe it or not, two weekends from today is Easter. It's on us already. Here we go. So um, this year seems to be going by so quickly compared to last year, which seemed not to. Um, I think that you will uh, enjoy the way that we'll approach this today. And uh, if you're familiar with uh, the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, then you might have heard some of the scriptures that I'll use. And if you're not, I think that I can bring a side to this that you'll enjoy and it'll bring us all together. Before I go there, I've got two things that I need to talk about real quickly. The first one uh, is for uh, April the 10th at 530 here in the sanctuary, we're going to have an Israel interest meeting. My hope is that we'll do a trip in 2021 um, back to Israel. You know, they're talking that traveling is opening up again. And um, man, you know, if we're going to travel, how awesome would it be to go to Israel if you're going to start to travel? Here's the thing. I don't know. I have to do the trip with a question mark. There's just no other way to do it. There's some unknowns right now that we just simply can't, uh, I, I can't, I can't account for them yet. Israel, Um, believe it or not, has already completed giving the vaccination to their entire population. They're done. They they lead the world, number one in the world. Uh, The U.S. is in the top three, but you know that we're just, we're we're like 15% of our population has been inoculated. So here's the thing. Will we, um, you know, best laid plans, will we get through the inoculation period to where there's herd immunity and then travel is open back up? Will we not? It's just an unknown but I'm going to plan for it. But I'm going to plan with this asterisk that because everything is just simply an unknown, if you desire to go, everything is refundable um, this year until we're able to say definitely we're going to go. But the place to start would be this, our informational meeting, like when we're going, the cost of the trip, what we're going to do on the trip, all of that will take place on April the 10th, 530 here in the sanctuary. 
My personal opinion is this. If you're a believer, you should go to Israel at least one time in your life. If you go once, you'll want to go again. I can promise you that. But why, why go? Um, you know, I'm up here teaching. And even today, some of the things that I'll teach about are direct references to places, to people, to events that took place where I can take you and show you those things. Now, it doesn't mean you can't learn by not going. But can you imagine like when you go and see something, it changes your perspective of that thing forever. Right now, whether you know it or not, you think about it in black and white. Go with me and it will be in HD for the rest of your life, man, it becomes that clear. And to touch um, and to, to, to walk and to see for yourself those stories in the Bible that we hold in esteem and to know that our Jesus walked there and did miracles there and was crucified there and resurrected there and to be able to go and look at those things, it's a spiritual pilgrimage. It's not a vacation. I'll just tell you that right now. If you wanna go on a vacation, go to Hawaii. Okay, it'd be a lot easier for you, uh, a lot more of a relaxed pace. But if you want a spiritual adventure, come with me to Israel. I would love to take you. It's our invitation to you, and I hope with everything in me that we'll be taking that trip in 2021. Uh, uh, the beginning again, April the 10th at 5.30 here in the sanctuary. And then the second thing is just to give you an update on the new building. Where are we? Uh, what's going on with it? Um, we met again with the architect this past week. Uh, our initial meeting with him was to kind of give him the wish list, all the things that we wanted. And then his job is to take that, see if it all fits in there, and to give us a price on that. So how do you separate what you want from what you can do? Money. That's what separates the whole thing, just like in normal life. So we just looked at it real quickly. Obviously, we have to make decisions about what, uh, what's affordable and what's expedient. One of the things we're going to have to do in the building is raise the roof in the sanctuary. So I'm going to give you a picture real quickly why we need to do that. And by the way, they're working on a 3D rendering. And the way the computer software works, they can actually do a rendering of what the inside of the building is going to look like when it's completed. And then you can do a tour through the building in a 3D rendering. But he's got to know what we want the inside to look like in order to come up with that rendering. So as soon as I have that, I will show it here. And it'll probably be the best thing that I can do beyond me trying to talk about it. If you can see it for yourself, it'll go a long way into like you knowing what I'm saying. But the sanctuary in the new building, so look at this room. It's double the size of this room, literally double the size of this room, right? So if you were to picture this room, you know, two of these rooms, look at the back set of ceiling tiles real quick. Turn around and look at them or look straight up depending on where you're sitting at. You see the back set? That's how high the ceiling is in the new building all the way across it. And it's, it's, it's 18 feet which is, that's a nice high ceiling, but here's the problem. If you have a sanctuary that's twice the size of this, from the middle to the back, that does not produce a good sight line when you're looking all the way to the front. And they can actually show you software ahead of time to give you an idea of what your facility is going to look like. And then his job is to tell us, hey, this is gonna work, this is not gonna work. So here's what he said to us. You can move in like it is and you do not need to change the roof line, but I think you're gonna be unhappy and I think your people are gonna be unhappy with it. So he said, it really comes down to my recommendation. Now's the time to raise the roof and not just like we do in worship, the literal roof, like raise it. So why raise it, right? Why, why do that right now? He said, you can wait, you can move into the building and do it a couple of years from now if you want to. But he said, it, it comes down to cost and expedience. Right now is gonna be the most cost efficient time to do it while they're building out the building. You get it? 
And he said, then the other thing you have to consider is just the expedience of it. Once you're meeting in the building, where are you going to go for two or three months while they raise the roof on the building? Now's the time to do it. So what's the cost of that? It's around a million dollars to do that because they have to mess with now spans that uphold the ceiling. It's metal. So they're going to take out two columns and raise the roof. I think it's 15 feet they're raising it. Is that, am I right about that? 15 feet. So um, raising it to 45 feet and it will be, it will be the right thing. And again, me describing it doesn't give you really uh, a good picture of it. Children's and youth are going to be state of the art. One of the things I'm really excited about, it's a huge foyer and it's got two features that I love. We told him when you're drawing it, Here's what we want you to think. Think living room. We want people to come in and hang out. We don't want them to feel like they got to get their stuff and go as soon as that service is over. We want them to come in and stay. There's a sweet coffee bar and a little cafe. Um, they're putting these roll-up doors on it so that you can do inside and outside together. It will be, it will be fantastic. Um, but right in the middle of it, when you walk in, they're designing this huge fireplace that you can see through on all sides. And it's kind of like the main feature to gather around. It looks incredible. And we are super excited uh, about that. Say all that to say this, we're raising money for it. And I know I, I've had somebody tell, Pastor, when we got, oh, good night. Can I say this real quick? The CU building. So those who go here, we're trying to buy the CU building. It's just like it disappears on us. What happened? I have to stand up here and say I have no idea what happened. I got information this week that there is, there, God protected us. And I've got to confirm some information. It would be, it, it, it's, it's an integrity issue to make sure that what I say is correct. But let me just say, if you've been a part of the process and you were like, what happened in that? And I had to say, I don't know what happened. Um, there's an issue with that building that was being withheld um, from the general public that we just found out of. And we weren't looking for it. It came to us. It found us. We didn't go find it. And as soon as I can share with you exactly what it is, I will tell you, but can I just say, we should all be grateful that God protects us. Even when he doesn't tell us why, just trusting him. Like when things don't work out the way you want them to, we always just get like, you know, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? Sometimes he's just trying to protect you from something and just trusting him, even when you don't understand is about as important a thing as you can learn to do. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's when a believer begins to mature that he can just trust God. She can just, you know, uh, just just know that God is always working for your good. All right. Um, so I had people say to me, we understood, you know, the cost of the CU building was double what this is. And haven't we raised enough to do this? And then I, I said something that miscommunicated. I said, if we don't buy the CU building and we buy the other building, we could likely pay cash for it. And what people heard was then we don't need, we can pay cash for the building, which is $8 million, but the building is completely gutted. Now, if all we want to do is pick these chairs up and go over there, then it's just $8 million. But to build out the building is $7 million. That's what it costs. That's just the, that's what it is. And if you're just like, Pastor, that's a lot of money. It's no doubt that's a lot of money. Um, but we have raised to date between the sale of our property and what you've given, we have about $7 million in cash in the bank. So you've done fantastic. You've just done unbelievable. But we're still raising money for this. And so I want to say in a very bold way, taking time out of the message to do this, if you partake of this church, if it's your church and you love it and you're a part of it, then be a part of the future of this church. 
because you will benefit from this, not just because the kingdom of God will go forward and it will help other people. Let me give you a picture. If you have little children, your children will love Jesus, serve Jesus, and passionately serve Jesus later on because of what we're going to do with this building and how it's going to be for children and youth and young adults. Maybe you, as an adult, maybe you'll celebrate your 20th, 30th, 40th, or 50th anniversary in that building like we will. Like we will. And so I just want to give you a picture that it's not just like, hey, good for you guys and we're looking forward to it. Be a part of it because you will reap the benefit of it when you do that. And again, the only thing I'm asking for, would you pray about it? And if the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, will you do it? If you don't hear anything, there's no expectation. But is it fair to ask you to pray about it? If you haven't done it, pray about it and see what God says. And there, we'll just leave it there. Enough of the commercials. We'll get back to uh, the message right here. Okay, it's Waymaker. And we're talking about Jesus, the cross, the death, the burial, and on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the cross, and it's not a message that's talked about a lot, and a lot of people are uncomfortable with it, not because they deny the existence of the cross, not because they they don't realize that the cross is important, but I think that a lot of people concentrate on the resurrection. We we live because of the resurrection, and we misunderstand the importance of the cross, and I just want to say to you, they are twin sons of different mothers, right? You, You do not have a resurrection unless you have the cross, And what does the cross represent? The cross is the lightning rod of how God dealt with your sin. Not just the sin of the world. You need to personalize it. It was your sin that made the cross necessary. And so no matter where we are in our walk with Christ, listen, you can never grow beyond understanding the necessity of the work of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, what Jesus went through for you and for me. And to stay close to the importance of it is to go back from time to time and remember why and what and and, and the wherefores of this. So this weekend is an attempt to bring the cross back into focus and to talk about the necessity of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Um, I'm going to use 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul who in context is actually not talking about the cross and then suddenly in the middle of this letter to a church in a, in a, in a place called Corinth, suddenly Paul in one verse of scripture just uh, like, like diverts and he talks about the cross. And if you're familiar with Christianity and familiar with what we're talking about today, maybe you've heard this verse and maybe you've heard it taught before. I'm gonna tell you the way that I've heard it taught and then I'm gonna try to swing it around and teach it in a way that maybe you've never considered before. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter two, one verse, verse eight, and the apostle Paul says, none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. One more time. None of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what does that mean simply? Paul is just bringing to account that the people who crucified Jesus did not fully recognize what was going on. And if they had fully understood what was about to take place, they wouldn't have done it. For instance, the devil... If the devil would have known the outcome of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he would have never crucified Jesus. Because in killing Jesus and causing Christ to be resurrected, the devil killed himself. Uh, This is true. Would Pilate, if Pilate would have known 
when he washed his hands of the blood of an innocent man and allowed Jesus to be condemned to death. And forever in all of history, Pilate will be taught as the man who could have done something about Jesus' death and was a coward and didn't do it. If Pilate would have known what the death and the resurrection of Jesus would have meant, would Pilate have simply washed his hand or would he have taken a more bold step? Do you know his wife, if you go back and read scripture, his wife had a dream about Jesus the night before Pilate was dealing with Jesus and she wrote him a note while he's in the trial of Jesus. And the note said this, I have suffered many things in a dream about this man who is an innocent man, have nothing to do with him. How many of you think Pilate should have listened to his wife? How many of you think you should listen to your wife? There's another message. So here, here's the thought. Uh, if, if the rulers of this age had fully known what they were doing, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. How about Rome? Rome was the power in charge. The, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus spread Christianity like wildfire. And within 200 years of that event, Rome fell because from within, uh, it became a Christian nation and could no longer support its pagan beliefs. Do you think Rome would have made the decisions that they made? How about Judas? If Judas would have known what he was really doing, would he have done what he would have done? Interesting thoughts. I don't know. Some people say that, you know, Judas didn't have any choice and that that was a predestination. And you can get into all those things. Today's message is not to deal with that. It's just that when I've heard that taught, it's always taught enemies of the cross. How about this? Would friends of the cross who didn't really know when they intersected with Jesus according to his death, if they had known what was really going on, would they have understood it a different way? Would they have appreciated it a different way? Would they have drawn more from it? And so today I want to preach on friends of the cross, not enemies of the cross. And I'm going to give you three vignettes that the scripture gives us, pictures of people who interfered with Jesus right before his death, uh, during when he's carrying the cross, and then at the death of Jesus when they had to take his body off of the cross. And they're really powerful stories. They're very short in the Bible. So let me just give you, this is, this is friends of the cross. If they had fully known, would they, have, uh, would they have appreciated it a little bit more? Would they have gotten more out of it? Would they, have, would they have spent a little more time with it, right? The first one, if you're taking the notes and you want to fill in the blank, Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. So this story, if you're familiar with scripture, uh, Simon only comes into the scripture just in this little part where he intersects with Jesus while he's carrying the cross. And I'll read it to you in just a second, but I need to set it up so that you understand the context. Jesus has been arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's taken over to the high priest. The high priest has to send him before Pilate. Uh, and, and here's how they mistreat Jesus during this. Now you're going to go, pastor, that's so brutal. And it's so bloody and it's so nasty. I don't even like thinking about it. Too bad. You need to think about it. You need to be aware of it. And you need to understand that the reason he was beaten is so that you don't have to be. And the reason he was judged is so that you don't have to be. And the reason he felt disconnected from God is so that you never have to feel disconnected from God. Jesus went through it. He took your place so that you can have his place. He had the place of honor. You had the place of judgment. And Jesus willingly took your place so you can have his place. And the way that we honor Jesus is to look at what he did and recognize it was for us that he did it. 
and appreciate the fact that he loved us enough to lay down his very life for us. So we will never outgrow this message. It will never become old hat. It will never become something that, Pastor, years ago, I came to that part of the cross, but now I live my life on the other side of the cross. Good for you, rightfully so, but never forget where you came from. Never forget who you are. Never forget why you're where you are right now. So Jesus is arrested, and they begin to mistreat him. <laughs> uh, they would pull his beard out with their hands. They would spit in his face. To mock him, they would put a blindfold on him and take a stick and hit him in the head from different sides and say, prophesy, Christ, who hit you? Someone had the twisted, uh, messed up idea that a king deserves a crown. So they found a bush that had two and three inch thorns and fashioned a crown out of it. Ugly, brutal, real. Put it on his head and then pushed it down so that the thorn went between his scalp and his skull. And the blood, oh the blood, it would fall, drip. It had to be a bloody mess where they mistreated Jesus. And you're like, "Ah, this is faster, come on. Do you know that Revelation says we defeat the enemy by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb? Don't be ashamed of the blood of Jesus. Don't be embarrassed of the blood of Jesus. Look at me. We're afraid to talk about the blood because someone new might be offended. The only thing that makes a new person able to fellowship in here is the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We will never outgraduate this. The enemy hates the blood and believers must cherish the blood of Jesus. We must cherish it. Uh, The coup de grace was to tie Jesus to a post and then beat him with a cat of nine tails. Beat him to within an inch of his life. Beat him so that he didn't look human. And again, the blood. All about the blood. The man was so beaten, so disfigured, so messed up. Now, let me just draw a picture. This is not a weak man. He's 33 years old in the picture of health and a carpenter. This is not a guy who's sitting inside who has not done hard work all of his life. He's in great shape. But they have mistreated him. He hasn't slept now for more than 24 hours. He's lost an incredible amount of blood. And then the finishing touch, the last thing they can do to shame him, embarrass him, and finish it all off is to make him carry his own cross. The instrument that they're about to pin him to, nail him to, And allow him to literally suffocate and bleed to death in a slow, humiliating, and agonizing manner. It's that place that this story comes into focus. Jesus is told, carry your cross. Now, most people think that that big beam that would have had to hold him up had to weigh more than 100 pounds in order to support his weight. So imagine this man who's in this condition, who's carrying this cross. This is not a weak man, but this is a man who's been beaten within an inch of his life, and he's tired. And the Bible says that while carrying his cross, and one more thing, it's not the weight of the cross that caused him to stumble. Listen to me. God began to take the weight of everyone's sin and place it upon Jesus. Not one person in Jerusalem had any more sin. Jesus is carrying all of their sin as he walks up the hill to Golgotha. Think about the weight of that. And while carrying that cross, he stumbles under that. Was it my sin that finally was the one that made him stumble? Was it yours? Was it the people in this room? What was, what was the final thing that caused him to stumble? Whatever it is, he stumbles and the Roman legionnaires had this ability that they could constrain, compel, cause someone to do work for them. 
Jesus taught about it. He said, if they hit you on one cheek, what are you to do? Turn the other. If they want your shirt, give them your coat too. And then he said this, if a soldier wants you to go one mile, you're to go. Do you remember that? What was that he was talking about? A Roman legionnaire, a soldier could look at you and say, you're going to do this. And you had to do it or they'd kill you. So while Jesus is carrying his cross, he stumbles under the weight because of the place that he's in. And right when he stumbles, <laughs> a man named Simon from a place called Cyrene, North Africa, Libya. So most scholars believe that this is a black man converted to Judaism who's come to Israel for the Passover in Jerusalem. He happens to be standing right where Jesus is when he stumbles and a Roman soldier looks at him and says, you help him carry the cross. Could you imagine? It sounds totally accidental. But Kathy, here's what I know about God. Nothing is accidental. Everything is on purpose. This dude thinks I'm at the wrong place at the wrong time. No, you're at the right place at the right moment about to do something that will live forever in history. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. You're sitting here and you think it's just another day, a normal day, like any other day you've ever existed. You don't know that you're about to cross paths with Jesus in his death and then his resurrection. You just never know. So we pick up this verse at that moment. It's Mark 15, 21, a passerby named Simon who was from Cyrene, modern day Libya, was coming in from the countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus's cross because he stumbled. And then it points out this weird, odd understanding. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Real quick. If Simon's only interaction with Jesus was to carry the cross for 10 or 15 minutes and then he's done, why bring up his two sons? Yeah. And if you don't understand scripture, you'll just think that's weird. But later on in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul writes a greeting to the Roman church and he says, greet Rufus and greet his mother. And the understanding of it is this, that Paul was writing to these folks after they had grown up because Paul came into the gospel way after Jesus was resurrected. And Paul meets the sons of Simon and they have become believers along with Simon's wife because of Simon's intersection with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And it changed them forever. So when they're writing about it, it would have been common knowledge. That's the Rufus. Like for instance, let me give you an example. If you go to church here, when I say Chris, which Chris am I talking about? How do you know? How do you know I'm not talking about the Chris that works down with the children or the Chris of Highlands Ranch? How do you know that I'm talking about the Chris that married me 37 years ago? Because you know that when I mentioned Chris, I'm talking about Chris, right? You don't have to guess. When they mentioned Rufus, they were living amongst a group of people who would have instantly known, oh, that Rufus. You want to go ask for yourself? You want an eyewitness? Rufus stood there with his father and watched Jesus carry his cross. It all happened. It's a powerful story. This is not in your notes. I wrote it. Listen to this. Simon probably thought he was saving Jesus from a burden that he couldn't carry. And what he didn't know was this. Jesus was saving him from a burden he couldn't carry. All of his sins. How about that, man? He's carrying this cross thinking I'm helping him. And the truth of the matter is Jesus is about to help him for all eternity. I wonder how many times we think we're doing God a favor. We think we're, we think we're helping. We're going to build a building. You're not helping God. He's doing something for you. It's going to matter for your family. It's going to matter for your future. It's going to matter for what goes on in the kingdom of God here. Get a picture, man. 
Stop making it just about I'm helping God. God's helping you. He does everything for you. I know some people are like, Pastor, you just get so like in our face. Thank God you have me. Thank God you have me. Thank God you have me. Let me give you the second vignette. Mary of Bethany. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, Mary of, okay, I know Mary Magdalene. I know Mary, the mother of Jesus. I don't know Mary of Bethany. You do. Mary had two siblings. One was named Martha, that Mary, and she had a brother. Anybody remember her brother's name? Lazarus. Lazarus. Well done, Kathy. Everybody else kind of, that doesn't buy it, right? That doesn't, I'm not fooling me. So there's Mary, there's Martha, and there's Lazarus. All right, now, this isn't in the Bible, but I'm going to give you what I think is the birth order of these three siblings. I think Martha is the firstborn. Why? Because the other story about Mary and Martha is that Martha is busy washing dishes and setting the table and cleaning the house. And Jesus is in the house for a party. And Mary doesn't help her sister. She sits at the feet of Jesus. And Martha gets mad at Mary. Jesus, tell her to come help me. I'm over here working. And she's sitting at your feet. You remember Jesus' answer? Martha, Martha. You're so worried about all of these things. You're always going to have dirty dishes, but I'm only going to be here for a few minutes and I'm not going to take away from Mary what she's chosen to be the better thing. She's sitting at my feet. Why? I bet Martha shut her mouth right then. I bet. <laughs> so I think Mary was the firstborn. Why? How many firstborns in this room? Raise your hand real quick if you're a firstborn. Yes or no, Martha's a firstborn. No question about it. She's the leader. She's doing all the work and she's mad because nobody's helping her. Firstborn. Okay. Where was Lazarus? I think Lazarus is a middle child. Why? Because the Bible hardly ever talks about him. (laughs) Remember, this isn't in the Bible. This is Pastor John's opinion. And Mary, who's Mary? Mary has to be the youngest child. Why? No responsibility, sitting at the feet of Jesus and oblivious towards everything else that's going on. Has to be that way. It's birth order. I'm sure of it, right? I'm a firstborn. I know Martha. I know Martha. (laughs) Mary of Bethany. It's that Mary. This family loves Jesus. Jesus stays with this family whenever he comes to Bethany. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. So whenever Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he would spend the night with this family. In fact, when Lazarus dies, they send message to Jesus. And here's the message. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. And the Bible says that Jesus actually intentionally waits a few more days before he goes because he wants Lazarus to die so that he can raise him from the dead. That's a hard thing to think about. I mean, he could have healed him and he decides to raise him from the dead. So Jesus has this special relationship with this family. Now we pick up this story. This is the Passover week. Real quickly, the week of Jesus' passion is the Passover. Do you remember what the Passover is? All the way back in the Old Testament, Moses is the deliverer of Israel. Israel is in bondage to Egypt. They're praying to God, set us free, set us free from the Pharaoh, set us free from slavery, set us free from bondage. And the Lord sends Moses, who's the deliverer. It's a picture. It's a picture of us, a picture of the enemy, and a picture of our deliverer. We are in bondage to sin. The enemy is the one who holds us in bondage, and we cry out to God, save us, and he sends Jesus, our deliverer. Do you remember why they call it the Passover, though? The last plague was the angel of death that came through Egypt. 
and it was to kill the firstborn, men and beasts. And the only way to escape the angel of death was they sacrificed a lamb. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw his cousin, when Jesus came to be baptized? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all a picture. So they would take the blood of the sacrificial lamb and the only way to escape the angel of death was to apply the blood to the doorpost of the house so that the angel would pass over. The only way to escape death, look at me, the only way to escape death is to apply the blood of the lamb to your life. It's the only way. There's not a second way. There's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no man comes to the Father unless they come through me. If they try to come any other way, they're a thief and a liar. Remember I said that. He's the way. Hmm. So Jesus, during the Passover, has come to be the Passover lamb. And it's during the Passover week in Jerusalem that all of the passion of the Christ plays out. And the beginning of his week is at a party at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. So we pick this up, John chapter 12. Uh, it's these seven verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead, and then this sentence. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Most scholars believe that the, the dinner and the honor is to celebrate the resurrection that happened about three months prior to this. So there's a big, raucous celebration going on, and they brought Jesus in the house as the guest of honor. And then look at this. It repeats itself again. Martha. Sir. Let's try it again. Martha. Because that's what she does. And Lazarus was among those who ate with him. And then here's what Mary does. Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said out loud, that perfume was worth a year's wages. So it is an expensive perfume. And it should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then look at this. Not that he cared for the poor, for he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he's the treasurer, he often stole some of the money for himself. And Jesus replied, like he always does for Mary, he defends her. Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for what? For my burial. Just real quickly, I want to bring three things to you. Number one, Jesus knew that Judas was a thief, but allowed him to keep the purse. Isn't that weird? What is that? I'm not sure. I think it's that God knows everything about us, and yet he still puts us in positions of honor. I think that's what that means. I'm not sure. Free to debate me, but I think that's what that means. The second thing about this that I think is really interesting is that look at the difference between the two responses. Mary loves Jesus in a lavish way, doesn't she? And Judas uses a religious dogma in order to shame people who love in a lavish way. And I'm going to tell you, the fragrance I want in this church is lavish love, not some kind of dutiful service of doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I don't care if you dot the I's and cross the T's and did it all correctly. Love Jesus in a crazy, radical, exciting way because that's what he wants. Yeah. 
And this religion that disguises itself as pious is the ugliest. Religion will put you in hell faster than anything in the world will. Listen to me. People who think they're doing the right thing because it's the right thing miss the right thing. Love Jesus and love him radically. Love him with everything that you have. Give him everything. Quit performing and give Jesus everything. That's what this story is about. And I love the way that she loved Jesus. I love what she did for him. But Jesus said, she's doing this for my burial. Here's what Mary didn't know, that five days from this event, Jesus would be arrested, abused, beaten, betrayed, hung on a cross, and his death would happen just a few minutes before sundown, which began the Passover. And there wouldn't be time to anoint his body for death. Anybody who touches a dead body right before the beginning of the Passover can't celebrate the Passover. They're ceremonial unclean. So what Jesus is saying is, prophetically, she's anointing my body for death because people won't be able to do it and fulfill the law the way it's supposed to be fulfilled. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mary just simply didn't know that his death would happen late in the afternoon, very close to sundown, when the Sabbath would commence. There wouldn't be enough time to prepare and apply the standard treatment of spices customary for a Jewish burial. So she was doing it a few days in advance. I love the story of Mary. Here's the third vignette and the last story that we have. A person who crosses paths with Jesus in his death, his burial, and soon his resurrection. Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe you know about Joseph. Maybe you've heard of him. Joseph was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin. It was 70 people who, uh, the best way to understand them, they are the Supreme Court over Israel. He was a man with money, with power, with prestige, with position, but he was also a follower of Christ. Listen to this. But he was afraid of what the people in power would think, so he followed Jesus secretly. I wonder how many secret followers of Jesus there are in the world who are afraid to let other people know. You know what I think is cool about this? Jesus didn't reject him for being a secret follower. He welcomed him, which tells us this. It's never quite clear who is a follower and who isn't a follower of Jesus. We think surely everybody in this room is going to heaven and the people that aren't are people that aren't here. Can I just give you a little indication? On the morning you wake up in heaven, I bet you'll look around and be surprised who's there. And maybe the most surprising thing is that people will go, you're here? Maybe that might be the most surprising thing that happens the day you wake up in heaven. <laughs> so here's the story of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a follower of Christ and did it secretly rather than publicly. And Isaiah the prophet, who lived 800 years before Jesus was on this earth, prophesied multiple things about Jesus. But one of the things that he prophesied was the way that he would die. And then he prophesied the way that he'd be buried. And he said this, Isaiah said this, that Jesus would be laid amongst sinners and in a wealthy man's tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who had carved out a tomb for himself and gave it to Jesus. We pick up his story. It's not up in the notes here. You're going to have to listen to me. Uh, this is John. <laughs> you know what I did? I went to Genesis. So I'm, you're going to have to talk amongst yourselves for just a moment. Da, da, da. Uh, John 19. And let me, um, let me pull this for you. And I think it's John 19. I think it's 30, 38. John 19, 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, 
but he did it secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body of Jesus away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, another man on the Sanhedrin who followed Jesus secretly. Nicodemus, the man who had early visited Jesus at nighttime, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus's body and the two of them, they wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. That was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid before because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus's body there. So I want to paint you a picture real quickly. These two are followers of Jesus, but they do it secretly. So they go to Pilate in secret and say, can we have his body? And Pilate gives them permission. So they go to the place of the cross and Jesus is still upon the cross. Remember, this is just after the soldier took the spear and stabbed him in the side to see if he was dead. And it said blood and water. The pericardium surrounding the heart was pierced, allowing the water to flow out. And they knew that Jesus was dead. So picture this man and the amount of blood without being gross and without trying to just be like vulgar about it. Can you imagine how much blood is at that scene right there? And these two men go to get that body. And and here we have the picture of Joseph of Arimathea who climbs up on top of the cross and gently pulls the spikes out of his hands and the spike out of his feet and takes his body. And there's no way not to get blood all over you, yes or no. And he loves this man. So he's not gonna just drop him to the ground. He's treating him with caution and treating him with respect. And maybe he hands him down to Nicodemus who then picks up the corpse of Jesus, 150 pounds, 140 pounds, I don't know. But forgive the pun, it's dead weight that they're holding on to and there's no way to keep the blood off of you. And they're trying in honor to prepare him and put him in a tomb. Get the picture? And I wrote this so I can say it the right way. Listen to this. Joseph was probably thinking to himself, by handling this corpse, I'm now ceremonially defiled. I won't be able to enter the temple or celebrate the Sabbath. All Joseph knew was that his neck and his arms and his clothes were being dirtied by the blood that was caked all over Jesus's body. And as he handled Jesus's corpse, here's what he didn't know. He was being smeared with the blood of the new covenant. He thought he was being defiled, but instead he was touching the most powerful detergent that's ever been known in the universe, man. That blood doesn't defile you. That blood makes you clean. That blood doesn't keep you from going in. That blood allows you to stand before God. That blood doesn't just cover over. That blood washes you clean so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your fault. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see what was wrong. He doesn't see what you did or what you think or what's messed up. All he sees is the blood of Jesus made you righteous in his eyes forever. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who we are, man. And you can't ever forget that and you can't ever ignore that and you can't ever walk away from that. And that blood is not something to embarrass us. It's not something to try to make us attractive to other people so we don't talk about it. That blood is who we are. It's who we are. We will never outgrow it. We will never outmature it. And I for one will never be embarrassed by it. It's that blood that lets me stand here right now in front of you. It's that blood that changed my life, made me clean, stripped me of who I was as a sinner and made me righteous in God's sight. And I'm not ashamed of Jesus. He's my hero. He's my hero. 
This last thing, I threw it in. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I did it last night. I forgot to do it in the first service. Amy reminded me when I went downstairs. And I thought, I'm gonna do it for your benefit. I'm not sure how many of you enjoy studying the word. I'm not sure how many of you ever uh, are defenders of faith and try to share your faith and have people kind of slap it back. And I had a guy tell me one time, you can't trust the Bible. There's too many inconsistencies, too many errors in it. And I, if someone says that to you, ask, what errors? Generally, they're repeating things they heard somebody else say that they don't know. But every once in a while, you'll come across somebody who's memorized the rote things. So I had somebody tell me one time, you cannot trust the eyewitness testimonies of the death of Jesus because they say he was in the grave three nights and three days, and yet the Christian church teaches that on Good Friday, he was crucified and he rose when? Easter Sunday. So count it with me real quick. If he was in the grave three days and three nights, count with me. If you go in on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. two doesn't equal three. And so I've heard people teach all sorts of weird things. Like the Jews count days different than us. Like they only count 12 hours at a time. So that would make the average Jewish person like 232 years old when they die. That's stupid. You have to do acrobatics with words in order to make it fit. So what is it about this that we don't know? Instead of saying it's inconsistent, instead of saying it's full of error, instead of saying it can't be right, what is it about this that we don't? That's how I always assume about scripture. If I can't make it make sense, what don't I know about this? And a Jewish mindset would help you understand this instantly. The Sabbath, go to Israel with me, by the way, and I'll show you this. The Sabbath begins, anybody that's gone with me, the Sabbath begins when? Friday night. Friday night. And it lasts for 24 hours until Saturday night. Sabbath means rest, okay? It's the Shabbat, the, the rest. And so all of Israel shuts down at Friday sundown and doesn't reopen until Saturday at sundown. And so if Jesus was put on the Sabbath, and it says the Sabbath, that he was crucified on the Sabbath and that they were trying to get him down off the cross before the Sabbath began, remember? And that's, if that's Friday and he arose on Sunday, how can you get three days out of it? Okay, I told you earlier, I don't know if you caught it, there was another thing going on in Jerusalem this week. Does anybody remember what it was called? The Passover. The Passover. There are three uh, big celebrations in Israel every year. There's um, uh, Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost. Those three feasts, everybody in Israel is supposed to go to Jerusalem. And if you're outside of Israel, you're supposed to try to come to Israel for those three feasts. And those three feasts are special because they have what they call the High Sabbath, which is the beginning of the Passover. You remember? This is at the beginning of the Passover, right? The beginning of the Passover started on Thursday. Not on Friday, but on Thursday. Listen, Jews begin their day in the evening, not in the morning like Americans do. Go back to the book of Genesis. When the Bible says God created, it would say it this way. And evening and morning were the first day. And evening and morning were the second day. And evening and morning. Were... Can you remember what I'm talking about? Okay, so let me put it together for you. If the Sabbath started on Thursday, but they begin their days in the evening, it's Wednesday evening that began the high Sabbath for Passover. Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday in the grave Wednesday evening. Count it with me. Wednesday to Thursday. Thursday to Friday. Friday to 
to Saturday is how many days? So then we teach this, that the women went to the tomb early on Sunday morning and his body wasn't there. But the Bible does not tell us what time he arose, yes or no. It only says by the time they got there early in the morning, he was already gone. So when did Jesus ascend? When did he, when was he resurrected? Not ascend, but when did he, sometime, late, late, Saturday night, early, early, Sunday morning, Jesus was resurrected, not in the tomb, so that by the time the women got there, he was already gone. That's why the tomb was empty. So when you say, well, these things, they don't make sense. All you have to do is have a brain. (laughs) And you can find it. It all makes sense if you'll search it out. Now, I know some people don't care for things like that. I love stuff like that. It's why I'm a pastor. It's why I'm a pastor. I love stuff like that. All right. Hmm. No pretense right now. Let's strip away all the candy coating. Let's strip away all the religion. Let's strip away that I'm trying to get you to come back. Let's just talk you and me right now. Move everything out of the way. So I got a question for you and you have to make a decision. What are you going to do with what Jesus has done for you? Remember the story of the Passover? The blood of the lamb had to be applied to the doorposts of the house in order for the angel of death to pass over. Jesus died for you and his blood has to be applied to your life or death will not pass you by. Remember I said that. I'm being straight with you. I am your friend and I love you, but I'm telling you the truth right now. Listen, what will you do with the blood of Jesus? Will you ignore it? Will you acknowledge it? Will you just ask the question, maybe or maybe not? I don't know. Or will you say, Pastor, I need that in my life. Jesus died for every sin of every man and woman who ever lived, is living, and will live. He died for every sin. But the only way it's applied in your life is if you say, I want that right there. It doesn't just happen automatically. He died for every person, but it's only applied personally when you say, I want that. What will you do with this message? You can say, Pastor, I don't want to decide right now. You're making a choice. Say, Pastor, I just don't want you to get in my face like that. Too late. Pastor, I don't want to have to know about this. You already know. And what are you going to do with it? Because every one of you will stand before God and answer for this question. What did you do with what my son did for you? I'm not asking you if you want to join our church. I'm not asking you if you want religion. I'm not asking you if you want to reform. I'm not asking you if you want to be good. I'm not asking you if you're going to come back. I'm asking you, what will you do with what Jesus has done for you? We may never see each other again. That's not the point. What will you do with what Jesus has done for you? So no pretense. No hiding it. Straight up, do you need this blood in your life? Do you need his favor? Do you need his mercy? Do you need his love? I can't make that decision for you. If I could, God knows. (laughs) I wrote it in my notes and forgot to tell you. 
Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate judged him. But what Pilate forgot is just a little while later, he'd stand before Jesus and be judged by Jesus. That day is coming for all of us. Don't forget what I'm saying to you right now. We will all give an account for our lives to God. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I don't want anything from you. I'm just asking you straight up, what will you do with what Jesus has done for you? If you hear me right now, and you're like, Pastor, I need that. And here's what's really important. If you've never asked for it before, I'm not asking you if you've heard this message before. I'm talking to you if you've never heard, never applied, never said, I need that. And you want to do business right now. Don't walk out of this room kind of like make a decision. Will you pray with me? So, Father, I just come before you um, very boldly. And the way that I'm able to come boldly is in the name of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done for us, he's given us access to the very throne room of God, the Bible says. And it's because of his blood that's paid the price, paved the way, removed the handwriting of offense that was against us, that's now been nailed to the cross. It's been taken out of the way. And all that's left is to decide whether or not you want relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. And if suddenly you can hear it, if your eyes are open to it, if your heart is tender to it, and you say, Pastor John, pray for me. I want that in my life. I need the blood of Jesus applied to my life. I need his mercy and I need his grace. And pastor, you're right, no pretense. I want that. If that's you and you say, Pastor John, pray for me. Slip your hand up right now. Just pray for me today, John. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. There's many of us. You can put them back down. Okay, listen. This is not a formula. You, you misunderstand. If you think this is some like flip a switch and everything's boom. That's not, this is not an automatic. This is a personal relationship. This is a moment in time where we say to God, I get it and I want it. I'm going to pray for you. My words are not special or magic or because I'm a pastor, I've got something that you don't have. It's just that I'm going to facilitate. But if this is what you want while I'm praying, agree with me. Say yes to what I'm praying. Say yes, God. That's it. Yes, God. So Father, thank you for loving us so much that you gave your only son for us. Thank you that you care about us, that God, we were helpless. We couldn't do anything to right the situation and to make a way. And so you took it upon yourself and you made the way through Jesus. And God, I just thank you right now that you love us so much that you did what it took to fix the broken, to bring us life. Father, forgive me of my sins. Father, cleanse me in the blood of Christ, not just covering over, but wash away my sin right now. Make me new. <laughs> Make me yours. God, I give my life to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Congratulations, you guys.
on a most awesome decision you could ever make with your life, man. Well done. <laughs>